Hey there, folks, and welcome to another Wildlife for You podcast. I'm Stephanie Payne, here with your other host, Daryl Radajak. We are Wildlife for You, and we talk about wildlife and conservation in ways that make sense. Can I just say that I'm super, super excited for this one? Start over. <laughs> Son of a pup. I can't, even get, <laughs> I can't even get the first one out. All right, that's it. Okay. <clears throat> Hi, folks, and welcome to another Wildlife for You podcast. I'm Stephanie Payne, here with your other host, Daryl Radajek. We are Wildlife for You, and we talk about wildlife and conservation in ways that make sense. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's fine. I am so, so sorry, because... I, I was just think, thinking here, you know, all these little clips, we're going to have a blooper reel soon. <laughs> and then uh, that's going on in my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, you just stopped talking a few seconds ago. <laughs> uh, all right. I promise. All right. That's it. Take okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little intro of our little blooper session of pretty much Daryl screwing up every time Stephanie tries to in, introduce him. I would like to welcome you to another episode of the Wildlife for You podcast. The reason I threw those in there is so you could have your share of Stephanie, since unfortunately she won't be joining us today. She is out gallivanting at the wonderful world of Universal Studios in Florida, having a much needed vacation. So I told her I would fill in her giant shoes. She is literally the the brainchild behind this podcast, and I got some pretty big shoes to fill. So I will tell you, she has been extremely worried about who could possibly fill in behind her, and she's been begging me to tell her who I was going to interview uh, to take her place. And I've kind of kept that from her because uh, I like teasing people, so that's kind of why I did this. But here was the thing. I had to come up with an idea for a podcast to do uh, without Stephanie kind of back and forth with me on different wildlife topics. And we typically spend about 30 minutes, 40 minutes talking to you, trying to teach you about wildlife. And so I was throwing out some ideas to myself, actually, trying to think of what I could talk to you about, what I can teach you about wildlife uh, by myself in her absence. And then it dawned on me because I was trying to think who I could possibly talk to. And the one person that was the only person that I could figure to fill in her gigundous shoes would be the main woman herself. And that would be Mother Nature. And so as a little oddball flair to today's podcast, I figured I would take a walk with you guys out in the wild and record this podcast alongside one of our greatest friends and superb woman at that, and that would be Mother Nature. Because at some point we have to realize we cannot teach you about wildlife all the time. And one of the amazing things is we find that wildlife teaches us more lessons than you'll ever know. 
Sadly, many people don't realize that. And what I'd like to do today is talk to you a little bit about how that happens and what to look for. And so my interview today to fill in the, like I said, the gigantic shoes of Miss Stephanie is to interview the next best person, and that would be Mother Nature. And I'm going to do it in a very special way. But first, I do want to tell you, I am up here in snowy Buffalo, New York, and I am outside right now starting this podcast, and it is cold spitting snow. And uh, the deer had just run through my dad's backyard, so I don't see them anymore. But it is bitter cold out here, so I think I am going to head inside to a little warmer place to talk to you a little a bit about what Mother Nature can teach us. All right, we'll be back in one second. Okay, I am back in the warm confines of my dad's house, and this is where I'm recording today's podcast, All By My Lonesome. So, what I started telling you earlier outside when I was taking a stroll with Mother Nature is there is so much that we learn about Mother Nature, but oftentimes we turn a blind eye to what she tries to teach us. And so what I wanted to do today is talk to you a little bit about how the outdoors, the wildlife, everything before us when we step foot in that great unknown, everything before us can literally teach a lesson if we learn to open our eyes to it. And I will tell you, undoubtedly, I have been absolutely tremendously blessed throughout my life with with the jobs that I've done, you, you all know that I'm a wildlife biologist, or at least most of you know I've, I'm a wildlife biologist, and I, I knew at a very young age exactly what I wanted to do. I was fortunate to have a dad that took me camping and hunting and fishing when I was a little, little boy, and certain events throughout my childhood really, really shaped things and really directed what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and it I credit it to kind of having an open mind and being able to appreciate and see things that many people may gloss over. And and I'll give you a prime example. And I I actually tell this, I'm going to talk more about a book that I will be releasing hopefully within the next month or two. But it mentions about how I got my start and it involved a little story of going camping with with my family when I was maybe 11 or 12 years old. And I distinctly remember one of the very first times my father ever let me go off in the woods by myself. Now, we were at this this small lake. It was actually a, a glorified pond. And I was able to walk around the outside of that pond for the first time by myself. And so, again, being 11, 12 years old, this is a really big thing to be walking in the woods in this very vast state park without any adult supervision. And I remember sitting down by the side of that that pond and sitting with my back up against a tree. I was looking out over the water and something white had caught my eye. 
and it was nestled in the crook of a snag that was out in the middle of this water body. And lo and behold, I noticed, I took a good look at it, it was a giant, beautiful, snowy owl. And I just could not believe it. I had never, I knew what they were, but I had never seen one before. And here I was all by myself. And I literally sat there in awe and wonder watching this bird. And lo and behold, after a few minutes, it finally took flight. And wouldn't you know it, it starts heading right in my direction. Now, at first I was like, oh my gosh, what? I, hell, I was a little boy. I'm like, do I need to be afraid or anything? But I just sat and watched it as it flew and it passed by, it wasn't too close to me, but it wasn't too far away. It was maybe about uh, 20 yards away when he flew by. And the thing that I, I still distinctly remember, it. I remember watching him, and all I could think about was how whisper quiet he was. You could not hear a wing beat. And here it was, it was a fairly large bird, and you could not hear it at all. And it just stuck in my mind like, like, well, put it this way, I'm 52 years old, and so it was, I'm not 52, what the heck am I doing? I think Stephanie's 52, I'm only 51. Um, so it was over 40 years ago, or almost 40 years ago, and sure enough, uh, it still sticks in my memory like it was yesterday. And as I sat there watching this bird go by, I was just thinking how graceful, how beautiful, how amazing that that scene was. But then I started thinking about some of the other forest creatures. For example, if you were a mouse or a vole that lived in that area, that graceful, beautiful, silent, flying bird was sheer terror and a menace. It was probably like Smaug, the dragon from The, from the Hobbit. Um, sorry for my nerdy, <laughs> my nerdy uh, analogy there, but I, I hope you know what I'm getting at because different perspectives in life give you a, a completely different view of of how to take things you see and hear and, and learn about. So anyway, it was one of those things that just, it made me realize, I didn't know it at the time since I was so young, but there are moments that you experience in nature that oftentimes most people just don't even realize how special they are because they're they're teaching moments. And so what I've done over my career, I've, I've been so blessed to be able to do just absolutely amazing things. Obviously, pursuing my, my dream and becoming a wildlife biologist has led me on some amazing adventures. Uh, obviously, many people know that I worked with black bears in the Smokies for a number of years when I was managing a place called the Appalachian Bear Center, which is, which is now the Appalachian Bear Rescue. And so I've had just a tremendous amount of bear experiences there. Um, but even after that, I, I went on to work with the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. I was working with deer and elk and turkey and you name it. And I was just doing amazing things. And fortunately, after moving out west to pursue a childhood dream, I'm still doing absolutely amazing things now with a whole different set of animals, whether or not it's bighorn or moose or elk or or you name it. So I've been truly blessed with so many different adventures in the wild and especially with, with wildlife. So what I have done, and believe it or not, folks, this was not this was not my idea as far as 
writing a book. I will tell you there was um, a number of people in my lives in my life that have really inspired me, and uh, one in particular who is not joining me tonight. Uh, I remember reading a few things that she had written, and it was just utterly amazing how someone could paint a picture that was so crystal clear. It was it was actually like the, the vision from the words that she created were much clearer than anything you could ever see on TV and almost better than what you could experience in real life. And, and I just thought that gift that she had was so amazing. And here it was, I had all these experiences myself and most of them were were by myself. I, I couldn't share them. And I, I, uh, sure, I told people about them, but it was it was more or less a passing thought about what had occurred to me. And uh, because of of that inspiration that she gave me, I ended up starting to jot down some of my experiences. And and I've been doing that for a number of years now. And so, lots of different inspiration have come to me through whether or not it was through the wildlife themselves or through people that I've known. Uh, through my wildlife career. So what I did is I've, I've collected and written down a number of stories. And sure enough, I ended up sharing a few stories, whether or not it was on Facebook or as someone puts it, the book of faces. And crazy enough, because I had never enjoyed writing. In fact, English was one of my most dreaded and awful classes that I took in school. But people were absolutely thrilled and captivated to read my stories. And they sent me lots of messages, which I'm so grateful of and thankful that people actually liked what I wrote. And believe it or not, over the last year or so, it's it's come to the point where more and more people are saying, man, you really got to put this stuff in a book. So Again, this was not my idea, but I finally sat down, finally had a few months to myself where I could start collecting all these short stories that I wrote, and I wanted to compile them into a book to share with everyone. And just so you know, I'm not going to reveal the name. I think I have a name for the book. This first book that I'm producing is, is going to be mostly about my bear adventures because I've had quite a few of those at the start of my career. And so this book will consist of a number of short stories. And here's the thing. I go back and I read these short stories. And just so you know, I originally wrote those down more or less as memoirs to my life because you talk to anyone that knows me, my my memory goes, sometimes I can't remember to put my shirt on the right way, but um, (laughs) that's embarrassing, but I've done that a couple of times. But anyway... Uh, my my memory, I'm sure when I get older, is probably not going to be as sharp as it is now, or at least as it was about 10 years ago. And so I wanted to make sure I captured all these all these memories and to be able to share them with people that 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 I love and that love and appreciate what I've done. And so um, I started going through and compiling a bunch of these short stories. And as I read each one, obviously I was. I was awash with the memories of those particular events. But the thing that got to me is as I read each and every story, it it just revealed, oh my gosh, 
mother nature or or the animals themselves I, i'll refer to it as mother nature in general but the, the animals and the wildlife themselves they teach me more than anything that i've learned in in school or college or anything like that now understand you learn a ton when you go to school whether it's high school college grad school whatever they will teach you lots of stuff that you will most likely forget the vast majority of it what I found with my adventures in the wild was these experiences taught me lessons that I carry with me throughout my whole life. They're, I'd literally call them life lessons. So after each and every story I wrote, I ended up teaching people, or at least letting people know that life lesson that I learned through that event. And so what I want to do, I'll probably do two of them. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read one of the excerpts from my upcoming book so you get an idea what it is like, and then hopefully you like it, and when it comes out, you'll be able to to find it somewhere because it's truly something that means a lot to me, and I hope if you read it, it will also mean quite a bit to you. So let me pull out the book so I can start giving you an idea of what's in store. Okay, now that I have my memoirs and my draft copy of the book in front of me, what I want to do is I'm going to read the very first chapter of it. Now, this is obviously not the the prelude that I wrote to the book, but this is what most of the book will be like. Uh, again, these are all true stories from what I did throughout my career. And this first story is called, Um, I Think I Lost Your Bear. All right, here we go. Early in my career, I managed the Appalachian Bear Center, currently known as the Appalachian Bear Rescue, a black bear education, research, and rehab facility located just outside of Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Every once in a while, we would get a call from the National Park Service about a black bear cub that was either orphaned or injured and desperately needed help. At that point in time, I had the incredulous job of getting that cub back on its feet so it could be returned to the wild to roam free and wild once again. My memory abounds with escapades and adventures from those early days, and if only I could paint those wondrous and vivid pictures with words, I'm sure you would appreciate the special times in which we lived. So this first story is about Houdini. Early one afternoon... I answered the phone at the bear center, and I was greeted by a familiar and friendly voice of Kim DeLosier, head biologist at Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Though always a treat to converse with, the gravity and frankness in his tone immediately gave notice to the urgency of the situation. Kim got right to the point. We have a cub here that's in bad shape and needs immediate assistance. Think he could help us out? Of course, Kim, that's what we're here for, was my immediate response. Kim immediately filled me in on the details. Earlier in the day, there was quite a scene at Chimney's Picnic Area in Great Smoky Mountain National Park. A few bears had wandered into the picnic area, undoubtedly hoping to scavenge some scraps from ill-advised picnickers. From reports of onlookers, there was a female with cubs and what appeared to be a solitary male. Though daylight panhandling by bears is dealt with swiftly by park personnel, 
The aromas of meat-laden grills is often a lure that cannot easily be overcome. So sightings of bears in the area of the picnic grounds are quite common. As long as the bears move on through and stay wary of humans, all is well. As it turned out, all was not well. Though an exact account cannot be confirmed, it appeared that one of the cubs ventured too far from mom and crossed paths with the solitary male. Not wanting to compete for any food sources that might be available in the area, the male tried to remove the threat and seized the lone cub by the hind leg, shaking him violently in his jaws and releasing him, either by accident or believing the cub had learned his lesson. Regardless of the intent, the young cub struggled through the grounds with a severely damaged and useless hind leg. Though we all know Mother Nature can be cruel, the fact that humans may have played a small role in bringing these bears together initiated the Park Service to react. Kim's first question was, how much money does the bear center have? Well, due to the severity of the injury, Kim had a hunch a rather expensive surgery would be required from the University of Tennessee Veterinarian School. This question made my heart sink. The Bear Center was still only a few years old and struggling beyond belief just to pay the utility bills. In other words, we were still relatively unheard of and few knew of the work we were doing. Hence, we had no money. I relayed that information to Kim. Without hesitation, and being the kind-hearted and dedicated person he is, Kim immediately got to work and started making phone calls from his vast array of connections at the park. Within an hour, Kim called back and informed me that he had found a donor who would pay for the entire surgery. The only question remaining was, would we rehabilitate the cub once the leg was repaired? I advised him it was not only our duty, it would be an honor to do so. Later that evening, I anxiously awaited as the National Park Service truck bounced along the dirt road leading up to the Bear Center. In the bed of the truck, sat a small metal cage containing the wild and still very fragile patient. When the truck finally came to a rest in the driveway, I immediately saw the extent of the injury, for the surgeons had to shave the entire lower half of his body. A 12-inch suture line, stained yellow from iodine, showed me where they had repaired the leg by inserting a long metallic rod into the bone. The wound was indeed ghastly. Kim and I unloaded the cage containing the near 20-pound cub and placed it in the maintenance building. He had two simple instructions to relay to me from the vets. One, administer the rounds of extremely strong antibiotics as prescribed to fight infection. And two, keep the cub confined in the small cage for at least two weeks to allow the leg time to heal and set properly. Two simple, yet required tasks. As soon as the bear was secured in the maintenance building, I could see in Kim's eyes he had quite a long day, chasing, capturing, and caring for this cub, so I bid him farewell, assuring him the cub was in good hands. There is about an hour left of daylight, so I returned to the maintenance building to peek in on the cub to make sure he awoke from the sedation without any issues. He was still out. As I watched the cub resting comfortably in the cage, it dawned on me that I had no way of feeding and watering him once he awoke. One must understand that at this point of the bear center's existence, we did not have much of anything, not even feeding bowls. So I decided to make an emergency run to the Townsend Shopping Center, which in essence was a well-stocked gas station. 
My goal? To find a few sturdy dog bowls, since I don't think they ever call them bear bowls, so I can feed and water our new patient. About 20 minutes later, I had returned bowls in hand. As I entered the maintenance building, I was relieved to find the cub still fast asleep at the back of his enclosure. He looked so tiny and peaceful resting there, curled up in a half-shaven furry ball. At first, I was wondering how I could place the bowls inside his cage, since it provided only one hinged door at the front end. Huh, not a problem, I thought, as his stupor would allow me to open the door quickly, place the bowls in, and secure him back inside without him ever knowing the door had even been open. Clink! That soft, barely audible clink of the metal latch was all that was needed to awaken the Tasmanian devil. In a flash, the soft purring for a ball became a whirlwind of bared teeth and razor-sharp claws hell-bent on shredding whatever lay before him. It was nowhere near like that, but I like to think that in order to maintain my manlyhood. In all actuality, the cub caught me by complete surprise when he woke and lunged at the open door, causing me to fall backwards on my heels. His snout wedged between the door of the cage, and before I could get it closed, he forced it open, crawled over my legs, and ran out the door of the maintenance building. Let me repeat. He ran out the door of the maintenance building. Oh my God, I left the door of the maintenance building open. Realizing my monumental mistake, I scrambled to my feet and chased after him. Lord knowing what I would have done if I ever caught him. Despite his injury, though, he was amazingly agile. I burst through the door and was fast on his heels about 15 feet behind. As he exited the maintenance building, he ran left down the hill and amazingly enough made a beeline to the one and only large pine tree that was on the edge of the blackberry field. In the excitement, out of the right corner of my eye, I glimpsed my trusted and faithful dog, Smokey. She is lying on a wood chip pile watching the pursuit in what I could only imagine as utter amazement. At that very moment, I saw the cub stop at the base of the pine tree with claws of his forepaws sinking in in preparation for making a fast and nimble ascent. He paused. I paused. While Smokey sat motionless trying to comprehend what the heck was going on before her, this was my one and only shot. My mind played out the capture in amazing clarity. I would charge the cub, yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs, scaring him to the upper reaches of the pine tree. As he sat perched in the upper boughs, I would tie my dog Smokey to the base of the tree, deterring his descent until I could call for help, which would be Kim, since I had no capture equipment. Yes, we were that scant on equipment and supplies. No sooner had my mind's eye painted the brilliant picture of my dog tied to the base of the tree with the bear perched above that Smokey, she probably saw the exact same picture in her mind's eye, and she's no fool. Her eyes bugged out, her hair stood on end, and in an instant she made a beeline north in the complete opposite direction of the escapade before her. Damn, she's one smart dog. Slightly deterred, I had to resort to plan B. Unfortunately, there was no plan B. I was still stuck in getting plan A implemented. I figured I'd work on plan B once I scared the cub up in the tree. Heck, I would tie myself to the base of the tree until I figured out what to do next. Without hesitation, I lunged in the direction of the still-poised bear, willing him up the tree. He looked up, he dug in, and a second later, 
He fell backwards as his newly repaired leg gave out as he tried with all his might to hoist his weight upwards. He simply couldn't do it. My heart sank. He scrambled to get back to his feet, though he couldn't climb. He could run, and run he did, down the blackberry field, over the brush pile, and into the darkening valley below. He was gone. From his sleeping state in the back of the cage to the last glimpse of his departing shaven figure into the woods below, less than 30 seconds had elapsed. In that frantic half-minute, I had aged 20 years and woefully felt none the wiser. Tears began to seep from the corner of my eyes. I had just lost the bear. It took every ounce of strength and willpower I had to make my way back to the trailer to call Kim and tell him what had transpired. In the meantime, I was already mentally working on my resume, for indeed I would need it soon. Anyway, I'm sure I could find a job washing dishes in local restaurants somewhere. The ensuing call began something like this. Hey, Kim. Um... I lost your bear. My voice was undoubtedly quivering. Over the course of the next few minutes, I described the scenario above and anxiously anticipated and awaited the deserved retribution. Instead, I heard a chuckle. Though I'm sure Kim was disappointed, his years of experience working with wild animals apparently softened his heart, and he knew all too well that rarely does everything go as planned. Let's just call this a spontaneous release. How about that? Kim said with a reassuring voice. I'll be over in the morning to help you set up some traps. My heart once again began to beat. Over the course of the next three weeks, I worked tirelessly baiting and setting have a heart traps in the valley below. My sole mission, to catch the cub with the shaved back end. Two opossums, one raccoon, and one destroyed trap later apparently from a very large bear that thought the best way to the bait was through the wire mesh. I finally abandoned the trapping efforts and resigned myself to a hard lesson learned and accepted the fact that the cub was indeed gone forever. A month later, the phone rang at the center, and it was a calm, comforting voice of Kim DeLosier. I don't suppose you'd recognize a cub with a shaved back end that's tooling around Chimney's picnic area, would you? No freaking way was screaming in the back of my mind, but I knew how completely unprofessional that sounded, so instead I blurted out, No freaking way! <sighs> I need to think before I speak. Once again, Kim chuckled and told me they were working on trapping him. Approximately two months after his unexpected and daring escape, the cub, now aptly named Houdini, returned to the bear center. Two pounds heavier, leg completely healed, and backside, still shaved but wonderfully stubbly. I promise you one thing, if there's one thing I learned, I'll always close the door behind me whenever I have a cub with a surgically repaired leg in my care. The end. Now that was the end of my Houdini story. And here's the thing, folks. And I'm done with reading now. Well, for a second at least. I look back on these experiences and it, it's just amazing how much can be learned. And like I said, th these are lessons that stuck with me or stick with me throughout my entire life. And here's the thing. If you just look back on that whole experience, this is what I wrote as the life lesson learned. We make mistakes. We all do. We are human. A person need not be judged by the mistakes they make 
but rather by how much they learn from them. To steal a quote from the late Henry Ford, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing. I now strive to learn from my mistakes, and I'm comfortable knowing the next one is waiting around the corner. We should all endeavor the same. And so it's just a tremendous lesson on being okay with screwing up. We screw up all the time. I am proof positive of screw-ups. I've done so many uh, that (laughs) it's kind of embarrassing to mention them all. But the thing is, every time I mess up, I learn from it and I better myself. And that's what we should all strive for is to become a better person by learning from our mistakes. There is no perfect person out there. And so this is but one example of a story in the upcoming book. And I will, let me see if I've got time to to read one more story. I don't know if this is going in the book yet, but give me one second to get a glass of water and maybe I'll read one more to you. Okay, I think I am going to, I'm going to read another story to you just, just to demonstrate how wonderful Mother Nature serves as a teacher and we can learn so much from her. Like I said, I, <laughs> I, I'm typically talking to, to Stephanie during these podcasts, but since she is not around today, I figured I'd go to the next best thing and talk directly to or about Mother Nature. And so this next event I'm going to tell you about, and once again, I'm going to read it because there's some notes I I jotted down, but this is not going to be in this upcoming book, but it demonstrates how you should look for inspiration and for lessons learned in literally every adventure you have outside. There's so many to behold and so many valuable things that Mother Nature can teach you. So with that, let me tell you a little bit about life lessons through crawdads. Their wide-eyed, slack-jawed, teary-eyed stare told the story. They were faced with a difficult decision that was about to teach them a life lesson about life itself. My boys and I had spent the better part of the morning walking along a clear, cold-running creek in western New York. One would think the highlight of our backwoods adventure was the beautiful velvet ten-point buck we caught sneaking along the water's edge, but it wasn't. Instead, our prized possession ambled lazily about at the bottom of a faded old blue beach pail, the kind with a cheap white plastic handle. Inside its keep scurried about two dozen of Mother Nature's finest-looking crawdads, or crayfish as those northern folk like to call them. The morning was spent teaching the boys to catch crawdads. It only took but a few tries for my nine-year-old son, Jarrett, to get the catching technique down. Red solo cup serving as our instruments of capture. Once he realized their first move is always straight shot backwards, he anticipated well and positioned the red plastic trap perfectly. Of course, those elusive ones that skirted the cup and brushed his hand or his foot caused him to start but I didn't care. The smile on his face and giggle in his voice assured me he was in no danger. Ryan, my six-year-old, was totally different story. He was trying to rewrite my age-old crawdad catching instructions. He couldn't quite figure out why he couldn't just reach down and grab them where they sat. 
Though he tried with all his might, he just couldn't get close enough to grab a hold of one. When they shot clear of his five-fingered claw, he wasn't nearly as startled by the mini lobsters as his older brother, but that was simply because he wasn't taught to be afraid of them. I was thankful for that, but after a while I finally convinced him to let the cup do the catching. Needless to say, the morning was glorious, and before long the midday sun was reminding us that Grandma would soon have lunch waiting for the boys. I looked down to see the boys tally. Though they had initially started keeping track of who caught more, it was soon apparent that Jarrett was going to win that contest. Fortunately, Ryan bested him with the biggest crawdad category, so each boy was beaming from ear to ear. That's when I dropped the bomb on them. I didn't even think twice before giving the order. We had to hike back up to the main road and start heading home, so I wasn't about to lug a big old pail full of water. My simple words were, All right, boys, dump them out. You would think I just sold the boys to the neighbors for an ice-cold Coke. Both boys stood in shock, not believing what they just heard. What do you mean, dump them out? We just caught them, was my son's exasperated cry. I then explained how we needed to get home, but my words fell on deaf ears, for they could not understand why they couldn't just keep them. And thus began the lesson. When I had finished explaining how Mother Nature created the perfect system, and that animals were not meant as an instrument of play, but rather of respect or nourishment, I left the boys with two options. One, we could relieve the bucket of its contents and return the crawdads to their watery crevices, knowing full well we can enjoy yet another day pursuing our clawed quarry. Or two, they become dinner. The boys' desire to take them home to play with, at the creature's expense no less, was simply not an option. Life is simply too valuable to disregard no matter the size of the creature. Save insects, of course, you can always squash those, being especially those biting bothersome kind. Needless to say, Grandma wasn't too happy her good cooking pot smelt of creek water, but the crawdads sure made for a fine fare that evening. And yes, even the six-year-old was sucking the meat from the tiny but tasty tails. I was ever so thankful for that long-ago creekside lesson because it was one that instilled a reverence in my boys. Whether it be from the pull of a trigger or the setting of a hook, they now understand they're staking a claim to an animal's life and that need not ever be taken lightly. If only more folks learnt lessons from crawdads. The end. And so, I haven't written anything for the life lesson there, but it just goes to show that some of the simplest acts in nature, whether you, whether or not you, you go for a two-month-long expedition on the Appalachian Trail or wherever you may be, you could just be taking a walk, catching crayfish or crawdads with, with your child, Make every day, every moment, a lesson in which they learn something valuable to keep with them for the rest of their life. So with that, I am going to probably bid you farewell. I probably bored everyone to sleep because I don't have the witty humor, the clear-talking voice as my, my co-host here. But I do want to let everyone know that you're not stuck with me. Hopefully, Stephanie will be back soon. She should be returning for our next podcast because I know I would not, would not last long without her. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you take it to heart some of the things I have taught you or at least tried to teach you about the value of Mother Nature. She, she is probably the one and only person I could think of interviewing or talking about today that is of 
of any value as far as teaching some life lessons that will stick with you for the rest of your life. So with that, I do want to give a shout out to all the folks listening, both listeners. I know you're out there somewhere. But if you you keep it up, stick with us. I, I promise we're going to be coming back with some more wonderful episodes. And hopefully we'll have a much better clear speaking host to join us. And we will see you on an upcoming episode and adventure. That was bad. See, gosh darn it. I cannot do this alone. Anyway, uh, you know how to follow us on Facebook. Uh, it's Wildlife For You. Look us up, like us, follow along. This is where we keep tabs and we let everyone know what is coming up on upcoming Wildlife For You podcasts or even webinars. Hopefully we'll be starting the webinars soon. We also have a wonderful website called Wildlife For You, also located at www.wildlifeforyou.com, all spelled out. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, wonderful page that was created and maintained by Trish Stevens. We thank her for that. But other than that, I know it was awful me doing this by myself, but I think I survived it. And I think I have talked way too much that I should probably sign out and pray for my co-host to return safely. All right, take it easy, folks. We'll see you later. <laughs>